Hello and welcome to Genetics Unzipped, the Genetic Society podcast with me, Dr. Sally LePage. In this episode, we're exploring the history and ethics of genome editing, tinkering with the genetics not only of this generation, but potentially generations to come. I don't know about you, but it's easy to take genetic modification for granted. Gone are the days when we would zap a plant or animal with mutating radiation, hope for the best and see what happens. Now we can selectively target individual genes, individual base pairs even, and cut out or add DNA. Every week I seem to come across another example of these technologies being used, whether that's inactivating a gene to help research what that gene does, or adding a fluorescent marker to make it easier to see what a cell is doing under the microscope. Circumventing a thousand years of conventional breeding to give a crop plant a new ability. And occasionally, we even come across being able to cure debilitating genetic diseases in humans. But, as everyone's favourite leather-clad, bare-chested dinosaur theme park consultant reminds us, your scientists were so preoccupied with whether they could, they didn't stop to think if they should. In the last few days, the Francis Crick Institute in London have hosted the third international summit on human genome editing, where a collection of the world's most prominent geneticists will indeed be stopping to think about the ethics and regulation of genetic modification technologies. To go alongside this academic summit, the Crick have created a public exhibition called Cut and Paste, and are actively inviting visitors to share their thoughts on what should and shouldn't be allowed. One of the scientific advisors working closely on the exhibit is Dr. Ganesh Taylor, a postdoc in developmental genetics at the Francis Crick Institute. To begin my chat with Ganesh, I wanted to know what exactly is genome editing and how is it different from genetic modification or GM? Genome editing as a phrase is actually a catch-all. So genome editing has actually been going on for quite a long time, like several decades. But we used to call it genetically modified organisms or GM or things like that. And what happened actually was about 10 years ago when a new sort of flavor of DNA editing tool came out called CRISPR-Cas9 or CRISPR for short. At that point in time, people started talking a lot more about it rather than just about genetic modification. We started calling it genome editing because CRISPR had basically made it way more controllable, right? It was editing, not just like generic modification. So the analogy I always use is CRISPR was to the mobile phone revolution what the iPhone was. It's like mobile phones existed before iPhone 1, but when iPhone 1 came along, we were all like, oh, wow, okay, this is what a smartphone is, right? And that's what CRISPR is to sort of genome editing tools. This is faster and cheaper. You know, the analogy doesn't hold there because Apple products are very expensive. But anyway, (laughs) we do talk a lot about CRISPR as we are a genetics podcast, we say, oh yeah, well, CRISPR this, CRISPR that. It's been a while since we've actually talked about what CRISPR is and how it works. What is CRISPR-Cas9? Where did it come from? So technically, it is a bacterial immune system. 
that was the research that sort of uncovered this thing. Which it, in itself is kind of bonkers that bacteria have their own immune system. I like we have know. immune systems against bacteria and then bacteria have their own. Yeah, so that's exactly right. Bacteria have to also defend themselves from even littler critters like viruses, for example. And what they do is, you know, like how we have memory in our immune systems. It's CRISPR technically is the sort of memory immune system of bacteria in the same way. So they basically take the DNA from the invader, they cut it up, and then they hold on to those little bits, like little wanted posters, and they go, right, I will recognize this, this thing if it ever comes back in again. Cas9 is a separate part. So CRISPR-Cas9 genome editing, I always say, is it's a two-part molecular system. One part is the CRISPR, one part is the Cas9. Now, the CRISPR part is the programmable bit because, as I said, it's those wanted posters, right? So then, as a scientist, what you can do is you can artificially create your own wanted poster for whatever gene that you're wanting to hit. And the Cas9 is the doing end of it, as it were. The Cas9 is a protein blob that does cutting. And so when you put them together, it goes, okay, this is what I'm looking for. And Cas9, when I find it, you will cut this piece of DNA. And so what we've got here is a tool for deliberately breaking pieces of DNA in locations of interest. And what we then rely upon is the fact that DNA does not like to be broken. It needs to be fixed. Fixing usually works out just fine, but occasionally mistakes get made. And in this context, when you're doing an experiment, say, and you want to know how important a gene is, if you manage to break the DNA and it doesn't get fixed properly and, say, a mistake gets introduced and so that gene stops functioning, that allows you as a scientist to be able to answer the question, hey, how important is this gene to this process that I'm studying? Look, we've broken it effectively, so now let's see what happens. So we can use CRISPR to break genes do we also use the same technology to insert genes? Because a lot of the history of GM crops, I'm thinking of like golden rice, for example, was inserting vitamin A genes, if I remember right, beta carotene genes into rice. So can we use CRISPR to insert as well as just to cut? Correct. Yes, that's exactly right. So the basic mechanism is by being able to break in a specific location, you have the opportunity to either remove, to insert, and also to just change over. So if you want to just simply swap out one or two bases for something else, that is something that you can do with a lot more precision using CRISPR, for example. How is CRISPR being used to edit things? So I'm going to break this into plants, animals, and humans, because I think in terms of the ethics, I think there's very different ethics for each of those three groups. So with plants, where are we at now? I, I've already mentioned golden rice back in the olden days. Um, that that was what, like the 90s? Noughties yeah. golden rice? Yes. Quite a long time ago. So where are we currently at with genome editing in plants? you know, we're at the stage now where it's not just, oh, we can put in a bit more beta carotene into the rice. It's like people are discussing and many companies are investigating the possibilities for using CRISPR in plants to 
provide more nutrients, to fortify them with different properties, minerals, vitamins, whatever it is that we want to put into them, to increase their nutritional value, literal calories. But a big one at the moment is also talking about the impact of climate change on crops and actually using CRISPR to sort of build more resilient crops, to be able to equip the literal plants to be able to grow in different climates that they wouldn't otherwise. And pesticide resistance, effectively, or resistance to various forms of blight. So you can basically now, theoretically at least, edit the plants so that they aren't so susceptible to destruction, effectively. And this is one of the big ethical concerns. And it really splits the field, right? Some people are like, great, don't have to use pesticides and kill off loads of animals. You just make the crops more resistant. And malnutrition is a terrible way to suffer and it affects a huge amount of the planet. Well, look, you can change that in one fell swoop, basically. So why wouldn't we? Whereas, of course, other people are quite concerned about it or suggest that we should use other methods of fixing these problems rather than going straight in at the DNA level and starting to alter things. Why make rice that's extra good when you could fix the political systems that prevent people in certain areas getting the kind of food or the levels of food that they need? And, you know, that's a fair enough question, right? Supply chains and provision of resources, you know, it's not a CRISPR addressable problem. And that's not to say you shouldn't use those things either, right? I think that's basically the umbrella of it. It's like, look, we could fix malnutrition without having to use any form of DNA modification. So how about we start there? So that's genome editing in plants. Moving on to animals. What kind of genome editing is happening with animal, non-human animals, I should say? Again, the sort of epicenter of the animal genome editing conversation is all about livestock, basically. It's about agriculture. It's about animals that we rely upon in our food chains. So chickens, pigs, cows, you know, those kinds of things. For example, myostatin is one of the ones that I think is being looked at in cattle, for example. So if you knock out genes that sort of regulate muscle growth, you can lead to Excessive muscle growth, excessive muscle growth leads to more meat. So that's one option. Then there's also the possibility of trying to improve the already ethical minefield that's around livestock. So for example, with the chickens and with many of these livestock animals, it's single sex, right? It's only female cows that make milk. And with chickens, again, the cockerels are all superfluous. So there is already, in fact, a company that has used um, genome editing to introduce elements of a sort of system, let's say, into chickens that allows them to screen for females only. And so only the female chicks are hatched. As we will be discussing in the next episode of Genetics Unzipped, we will be talking about uh, getting rid of male chicks. Well, exactly. And, you know, the use of these CRISPR technologies has made it possible to do even earlier obviously doesn't address the problem of should we be doing this at all, but making it more ethical or more palatable in some senses is another way of doing it. And then moving on to humans, this is obviously going to be the most controversial. So what currently is allowed to happen when it comes to editing genes in humans? What isn't allowed to happen and what has been done, what hasn't been done? Okay, so there's a difference between human embryos and human babies. So in human embryos in the UK, there was only one as far as I was aware. The Neocan lab 
they were given a license to use CRISPR-Cas9 genome editing in early human embryos to research how the early decisions get made during an embryo. So there is some provision for that, but it's very tightly regulated. But those embryos are never destined to become Correct. humans. That's exactly right. That's exactly what I was going to say. So the rule is always and is consistently supposedly across Earth. If you need to use human embryos to, to address your research question early on, provision can be made for that, but they will not be implanted. And it's completely illegal to do so in most countries. So you said there was a difference between editing human embryos and editing humans, babies, adults. What's happening with humans after they've been born and genome editing? Yes. So the reason why there's this important distinction is if you edit human embryos early on, it falls under a category called heritable genome editing. Because if you modify an early embryo, it is possible that you might modify the cells that will become the sperm and the egg eventually. And so the modification you introduce might be propagated onto the next generation. Whereas if you edit in a formed body, the sort of future sperm or egg cells have already been put aside and you probably won't be targeting their genomes. And so it's what's called somatic genome editing. At present, there is far more interest in the somatic gene editing that's going on. So people are more interested in using genome editing to develop cures and treatments, but of a person who's been born with a situation. So one, for example, that springs to mind immediately is things like sickle cell disease, one of these blood disorders. You know, sickle cell disease leads to a huge number of health complications and deaths across planet Earth. It is known to have a genetic basis. And so genome editing can be used to correct that and has been. But there was quite a substantial price tag on it. And so therein we come back to the issue of ethics, right? Who's going to pay that? Who can pay that? Yeah, what sort of price do you put on a healthy life? It's... Uh... Very, very difficult to to determine. So you've been sharing all of this kind of research with the public through this public exhibit. What would you say the biggest misconceptions about this sort of research that you've had to try and overcome when creating this exhibit? Honestly, I think I think the biggest misconception is that bizarrely, people will just be like, oh, I'm not going to understand this. So it's actually just overcoming that initial, oh, I'm not smart enough or I'm not going to get this hurdle that immediately comes up when you say to someone, oh, we, you know, we've got an exhibition about genome editing on. And the fascinating thing is the moment you get people over that hurdle, turns out everyone's got loads of opinions because, of course, they have. Who doesn't? Right. But it's just getting them getting them in. I think especially because it is such an ethical issue. Like you don't even need to know how the genetics are being edited to be like, okay, if there is a million dollar treatment for someone, who gets to pay for that? That You need to know very little about the underlying science behind it to be able to really engage with those ethical quandaries. Exactly. I mean, for me, at least, the whole thing can be summarised very, very simply. It goes like this. DNA contains information that is important for your health and for your body. That is true for both plants, for animals and for human beings. And so now that we have a technology that allows us to alter DNA, it means that we can have an impact. We have choice 
in the matter of health and bodies of plants, animals, and humans. And so now, here is the question. Think about anything that you want to in the world about health or about bodies, and now know that we can change that should we wish to. What would you do? What do you think is worth doing? What do you think is not worth doing, right? That's it. That's literally what the conversation is. And everybody kind of knows that. Like, we all know that somewhere deep down inside, right? That there is this relationship between what human beings do and how things work out and and that we have impact beyond just our own bodies on, on Earth. And Have any yeah. of your opinions changed through the process of talking with the public about this? Yes. If I'm being very honest, this is just a very personal reflection here, but I consider myself to be a very solution-orientated person. And so to me, I would always have thought fixing something has always got to be better than not fixing something. And I'm a big believer in human beings being able to have agency and make anything they want to make possible. I think our human world proves that to me. And so I have this incredible faith that if we want to do something, we can do it and that, you know, things should be fixed and optimized and brought into balance. And, you know, these are my beliefs. But I think through this exhibition and through talking to more and more people, the big thing that I've had to accept, I guess, is that some people would genuinely feel more comfortable to not interfere or not take control and let things be for reasons of historical or social values that maybe I don't necessarily share. And just accepting that people like can have that position and accepting that I think has been quite a journey in itself but one of the things that makes the exhibition unique is that we are also inviting people to write down or record their thoughts and their reflections on the exhibition and we are literally listening and collating this information because of course you know the Francis Crick Institute is a major stakeholder in the British sort of research landscape and also therefore we will be consulted when it comes to you know big policy decisions like, for example, what should happen with the genetic modification of plants and agriculture laws that, as I said, are already coming up for debate. So this is an opportunity to for the public to have their opinions listened to by an institution like ourselves, and then we can collate that information and it can genuinely will impact how we communicate going forward. That was Dr. Ganesh Taylor from the Francis Crick Institute. You're listening to Genetics Unzipped, the Genetic Society podcast. Once again, we want to let you know about what's coming up from the Genetic Society over the next couple of weeks. On Friday the 17th of March, the Royal Institution are holding a For Your Inspiration event in association with the Genetic Society, giving young people aged 13 and up an exciting hands-on evening of demonstrations, activities and an opportunity to learn more about what it's like to be a geneticist. Maybe you could make a whole genetics day out in London – Visit the cut-and-paste exhibit at the Crick before hopping on the tube to the Royal Institution. Sounds like a great day. 
There's a link in our show notes to the Royal Institution's website for more information and where you can buy tickets. And if you've been intrigued to find out about how we're already editing genomes to help cure sickle cell disease and you want to find out more, plus you enjoy listening to podcasts, well, you're in luck because the Genetic Society have funded a five-part podcast series called Sickle Cell Unboxed. Medical doctor and producer Dr. Yemzi Bikini unboxes topics from the historical origins of sickle cell anemia to pioneering new treatments. As always, you can find out more information along with links to everything we mention on our website, geneticsunzipped.com or come and say hello to us over on Twitter at geneticsunzip. It's clear that there are some very difficult ethical decisions to be made about what genome modification should be allowed to take place and under what circumstances. But that then opens up a whole other question of who should get to make those decisions? Scientists? Ethicists? Governments? The public? Professor Robin Lovell-Badge is the head of the Laboratory of Stem Cell Biology and Developmental Genetics at the Francis Crick Institute and one of the organisers of the International Summit on Human Genome Editing. And Robin was chairing the session at the previous summit in 2018 when Chinese researcher He Jiankui announced that he had used CRISPR-Cas9 to edit the genome of three human embryos in an attempt to make them resistant to HIV. Not only that, but those three embryos were implanted and came to term, thus being the first ever CRISPR babies to be born, much to the horror of the scientific community. So when it comes to regulation and ethics approval, who does Robin think should get to make the decisions? I've always been very consistent on this since I started talking about the subject, that it should not be left up to scientists or clinicians by themselves. It has to involve others. It has to involve other professionals, ethicists, people who understand regulation and governance, but also members of the general public. It's really important that the members of the public get to know something about the technology and can discuss it properly amongst themselves with others and then feedback into any policy decision about how this technology is regulated. That's true of the somatic genome editing as well as the heritable genome editing. It's, I think, really important to hear that. Under what circumstances people might be okay with the use of the technology if it were shown to be safe. And, of course, that's where we want to hear from the public where they would draw the line, what might be acceptable, what might not. What happens if... The people that are involved in deciding whether this should be allowed. I mean, you're never going to get a situation where everyone agrees. But if some countries agree and some countries don't, I imagine that cultural attitudes will have a huge bearing on on all of this. What do you do? (laughs) That's a very good question, and it's a complicated one. So I was a member of the WHO committee set up to look at the whole area of governance. And it's clear that you will never come up with rules that are worldwide. I mean, it's just so challenging to come up with any any big international agreement on any topic. And this one in particular would be very, very difficult. Because there are some countries which would say, point blank, no, you shouldn't go anywhere near, for example, heritable genome editing. 
just no. Others are would be more permissive to that. So what we basically say is that it's up to each jurisdiction to come up with rules. But there have to be rules, and those rules have to be transparent to the scientists and clinicians who might be doing the work. They also have to be transparent to the public living in those jurisdictions. And you can have a, the whole variety of mechanisms can be used, ranging from simple peer pressure, where it's other scientists, ethicists, putting in their words saying, you shouldn't do this, or maybe this will be allowed, to specific laws, which could allow certain things and not others. Many countries at the moment have a very simple ban on heritable genome editing. But the issue with, with having sort of simple bans is that they can be very difficult to change. So once you have a law, it can be very hard to change that law. It can take many years. So ideally, what you want is regulation that's flexible, that can accommodate changes in the science and changes in public acceptance of what should be allowed or what shouldn't be allowed. So more flexible regulations is a much better way of doing it, at least some people think. A simple ban on the use of a technology is, is never very constructive. It stops research, it stops people thinking about something, in my view, and that can be a, a problem sometimes because people have a full sense of security if they think, oh, this isn't allowed, therefore nothing's happening in this space. Well, that's not the case. And clearly it wasn't the case with Hojonki in China. So JK, as we call him, announced to the world that he had edited the genome of two babies. So he used genome editing to mutate the CCR5 gene that encodes the receptor for the HIV virus with the aim of getting the children born HIV resistant. So everyone had thought at the time, well, no one's going to do it because everyone says it's unsafe. He went ahead and did it. And that situation was done in spite of regulation, am I right in saying, that it, it didn't follow the proper regulatory procedures? Well, in China, there were no laws against doing it. And that, that was one of the problems there. So JK was put in prison for practicing medicine when he without a license. So they came up with a somewhere putting him in prison, but it wasn't actually for doing heritable genome editing. In the UK, as in many other countries, there are specific rules which say you cannot do this. You cannot do heritable genome alterations. That was Robin Lovell Badge. Genome editing is powerful technology with the potential to change humans and the world we live in. So the decisions about whether and how to use it shouldn't just come down to scientists. Cut and Paste is a new hands-on exhibition at the Francis Crick Institute that aims to explore the ethical issues around gene editing and gather the public's views about how this technology should be used. Kat Arney went to meet Ruth Gard, the creative producer behind the exhibition, which was put together with design agency The Liminal Space, to find out more about the idea behind it and the kinds of things that people can do. A really important element is what a visitor journey might look like and feel like. In this particular instance, it's a very interactive experience. It's about relatability. It's often about playfulness, bringing things down to a scale that people can have a human relationship to. So we wanted to try and touch on 
a relatively broad spectrum of issues. And I guess trying to pin down what we felt were the sort of top level and most critical ethical considerations that we knew that people were thinking about and talking about and trying to bring those into a mainstream conversation. So let's imagine we're walking through the exhibition now. What's the first exhibit that we see? What does it ask of us? What can we do with it? So the first, if you like, station, for want of a better word, which we've called Pass It Down, is really about introducing people to the idea of inheritance. And we wanted it to be at a very human scale. Obviously, this is a huge topic, genome editing. So we wanted people to start with a very sort of human scale, almost quite individual relationship to this idea of what your genome is. So the first interaction involves thinking about the tastes, traits and talents that you might have inherited from your parents and those that you might want to pass on. So you have like three trays of objects. You can then choose a sort of small selection of that represent what you might have inherited, what you might want to pass down. And you then put those on a kind of magnetic gift shape, which is on the back of the unit. And that's kind of your opportunity to think about what are the things that make you, you. And on the other side of that interaction, we also touch on what happens when somebody might have inherited something that they don't want to pass down. So we've started at this kind of big top level, like understanding, well, there's things that are inherited. Maybe you like it, maybe you don't. Where do we go next? Next, we zoom out and we take a more global focus. So we have a a quite playful interaction again, which is called Roll the Dice. And here you get a huge, fluffy, squishy dice. On each side, there is an image. And each of those images corresponds to one of six kind of scenarios where genome editing might be used. So they include genome editing cows to create less methanes. We have a plant genome editing scenario, which relates to a crop called golden rice. We then have a scenario which connects to malaria and genome editing mosquitoes in with a view to eradicating potentially malaria. We have a scenario which relates to sickle cell disease. So that's obviously human genome editing, but that's the somatic genome editing, which only affects the body of the person who is treated with it. And then we have another scenario which relates to heritable genome editing. So that's about what is regarded as one of the most ethically challenging applications of genome editing, which is not currently permitted in over 70 countries, which is where you would potentially genome edit eggs, sperm or early embryos, which would then, whatever the edit is carried out, would then impact on all future generations from that edited embryo. So I've played this when we went to have a look at the exhibition. The dice are extraordinarily pleasing. Uh, Roll the dice. I got sickle cell. I picked up a card. There's loads of information there about what the disease is, what the gene editing would hope to achieve, some of the things to consider. And then I get a little ping pong ball and I get to like cast my vote. Do I think it's a good thing? Exactly that. So you take your ping pong ball, you go over to a a number of funnels where you can drop your ping pong ball. And that's really to identify whether you're very in favour, whether you're kind of sitting on the fence or whether you're absolutely adamantly against. It was absolutely fascinating just seeing the different coloured balls in the different things. And like people are sickle cell, absolute winner. Everyone's very, seemed very happy with that. Making superhumans? Mm, not so sure about that. And then seeing the kind of the distribution each side. Malaria, people were seemed on both ends, like not happy with it at all and 
very happy with it. How are you capturing this data you know, as the exhibition goes on? There are two areas where we're trying to gather people's responses. So one is, as you say, with the with the ping pong balls. And that is, we acknowledge this is not forensically scientific in its methodology, but, you know, we are sort of every few days, as soon as the kind of funnels are full, they are photographed and then they're emptied and then people start from scratch, if you like. So there's an attempt to keep a photographic document, if you like, of how there's a kind of distribution of, of ping pong balls through those funnels. The vibe. Exactly. We're getting mainly a vibe. And then we also are gathering people's feedback in the third and final area called Make Your Mark, which is a space for people to really reflect on what they've seen, what they've thought about, what they've played, if you like. And then they get to either draw or write or record their voice and really ask either questions or just give their reflections. And all of that is also going to be kept and some, I'm sure, creative way to um, gather all of that data, if you like, to feed back both to Crick scientists and hopefully beyond. What's your hope for someone coming to this exhibition? What would you hope for them to walk away thinking, feeling? I hope they'll feel provoked to think about a subject that either they may have thought about before or maybe have never given any thought to at all. I hope it might make them think about what we value in human experience, human identity. You know, I think human genome editing particularly really does provoke a lot of questions around the kinds of traits that we value, the traits that we devalue. There is an element to the exhibition which will be added in the early summer, which I hope will even further amplify that that sort of provocation because we've commissioned an artist called Esther Fox, who herself lives with a genetic condition, to create an art piece that responds to the theme of genome editing but through the perspective of people with lived experience. So that is a really critical part of the exhibition that will be coming later and I hope will will really inspire people to think a lot about that aspect of, of this topic. So we've got this exhibition, which is a static exhibition. People can come and see it at the Crick and the days and the times that it's open. Are you doing anything else to engage the public around this theme? We've got an online version of the exhibition as well for people who aren't able to visit in person. And we also will be programming some live events to coincide with the exhibition, which runs until early December 2023. So that's kind of in development now. And that will, of course, be made public as and when those events come to fruition. I'd certainly recommend if people could come to it. It's such a fantastic building. What's your favourite bit when you walk in there and look at it? What are you always drawn to and go and have a little fiddle with? (laughs) I mean, I love the colour scheme that the liminal space have chosen in their design. It's incredibly, it's just very, very pleasing colours in terms of the, like the units and the cards and the, we have these kind of lollipop shaped signs, which have got questions on for people to think about as they move around the space. We've got quotations that are kind of pinned to the pillars. So all of those things have been so beautifully graphically designed. So that's what pleases me most. That was Ruth Gard chatting with Kat Arney. If you are able to get into central London, the cut and paste exhibit is open on Wednesdays through Saturdays until December 2023 at the Francis Crick Institute, which is right next door to King's Cross St Pancras Station. Although do check the opening times before you go. And if you'd rather explore it online, We'll put the link in the page for this episode on geneticsunzipped.com. That's all for now. 
thanks to all our guests, Ganesh Taylor, Robin Lovell-Badge and Ruth Gard from the Francis Crick Institute. We'll be back next time when I'll be saying bye-bye to the boys and exploring whether new gene technologies and climate change will make males extinct. For more information about this podcast, including show notes, transcripts, links, references and everything else, head over to geneticsunzipped.com. You can find us on Twitter at geneticsunzip and please do take a moment to leave us a rating in the Spotify app or review us on Apple Podcasts. It really makes a difference and it helps more people discover the show. This episode of Genetics Unzipped was written, presented and produced by me, Sally LePage. It's a first Create the Media production for the Genetics Society, one of the oldest learned societies dedicated to promoting research, training, teaching and public engagement in all areas of genetics. You can find out more and apply to join at genetics.org.uk. Our theme music was composed by Dan Pollard, the logo was designed by James Mayle, and audio production is by Emma Werner. Thanks for listening, and until next time, goodbye. <laughs>